will start. People have uh, Play-Doh with them? What we're going to, I think what we're going to do today is talk about uh, both Ovid and Plato. Um, and maybe a little Aristophanes. I hope the Ovid is like just great and entertaining and um, all those stories that you always knew, now you really know them. More or less? No? Yes, kind of. Uh, here are two passages from Paradise Lost. We haven't done any Milton in a while. And, you know, he's important. Uh, and I want us to look at them. One of them is um, based on an Ovidian passage we did read, and one is based on an Ovidian passage we didn't read because there's just so much Ovid that, well, you could have read more, right? But I was being nice, and you were catching up. Um, it's so much faster than Homer, uh, partly because the lines are shorter, uh, partly because the stories are um, just great mythological stories. Uh, one thing that I hope you notice is just how um, cleverly Ovid does all the transitions from story to story. That is that uh, part of what he's doing is putting the entire world together um, along a pathway that you can follow. He never skips. Sometimes it looks like he's skipping, but there's always some bridge from one story to the next. And the idea is that if you, were to, that if you follow all these stories out, everyone is related to everyone. Um, everything is related to everything. Um, it's all connected. And that's partly the, you could say, um, the enacting. Thank you. Um, Ilan, here are a couple of passages from Paradise Lost we're going to look at. Uh, is the enacting um, in poetry of the metamorphoses, metamorphoses that he's describing. Um, in fact, that's, you may recall that that's what he says in the invocation to the muse at the very start. Uh, what he says is um, on, uh, it's not page one, unfortunately, page 16. Um, uh, my mind leads me to speak now of forms changed into new bodies. Um, so he's led there by his mind. My mind leads me to speak now forms changed into new bodies. Um, so his mind leads him to um, the creation of forms, of forms changed into new bodies. Oh, gods above, inspire this undertaking, which you've changed as well, and guide my poem in its epic sweep from the world's beginning to the present day. So the poem itself has undergone metamorphosis. Um, and or has undergone his, his undertaking has undergone metamorphosis that is the very idea of the poem is already a change in his mind he's changing into the person who's going to write this poem and then the poem itself is always changing as he writes it as he composes it the difference between your plan, your conception, and the execution of that conception is also a metamorphosis. So the very idea of metamorphosis is an idea, here, Dana, this is um, a couple of passages from Paradise Lost we're going to look at. Um, the very idea of metamorphosis is partly and consistently an idea of the creation of poetry. Um, and that's why there's so many poet figures, musician figures and poet figures 
um, in the metamorphosis from Apollo through Orpheus, Calliope, um, and so on. Uh, we've seen something similar in Homer. The thing to remember about Ovid is that he's writing, he, he would think that he's writing about 700 years after Homer. So um, compare Ovid will think about Homer more or less the way we think about Dante. That is someone who is so far back in time as to be an ancient, where Ovid is a modern. Um, as we move into Roman poetry, as I say, we're going to spend a little more time on Plato, but as we move into Roman poetry, um, doing um, Ovid today and a little bit um, on Tuesday, and then doing Virgil, uh, so you should be reading the Aeneid, just so you know. Um, as we move into Roman poetry, um, we're moving into a culture and a civilization that regards itself as the new world, regards itself more or less the way the US regards or regarded itself um, in the second half of the 20th century with respect to um, a much older and antiquated and falling apart European civilization, and in particular with respect to Europe, let's say, 500 years ago. Um, that's how the Romans thought about the ancient Greeks. They were amazing, but that was more than half a millennium ago. Um, it was a really long time ago. That's what they thought. Um, so these civilizations still existed. The Egyptian civilization, um, more or less. The um, uh, Greek civilization, more or less. But it's also, they're no longer where things are happening. Where things are happening is in modern Rome. If you guys saw the HBO Rome series, um, that's probably, um, besides being really good and really fun and, and so on, um, you can see how one of the great things about that series is that they're treating Rome as though it's a modern place. Um, I mean, not a, not a happy place, um, but a place which is um, delighting in its military power and in, and in its wealth. Um, and a uh, completely new kind of country, completely new kind of nation, or completely new kind of empire on Earth. So when Ovid talks about Homer and talks about Greek myths and talks about the founding of Rome and so on, and when Virgil do also, they're talking about this seven or eight hundred years later, and they're talking about stuff that they think of as having happened um, seven or eight hundred years earlier. Um, and they're talking about it um, as um, fun um, stories from the really distant past. Um, fun stories that still have an effect in the present. Just the way when Milton does Paradise Lost, um, what he's describing, um, what he tells her stories that he more or less thought happened um, 5,500 years before um, the writing of Paradise Lost, that is in 4000 BCE, um, and um, that his allusions to Greek and Roman and um, to some extent Egyptian um, work are allusions to things that are um, really, really, really distantly in the past for him from the foreshortened perspective of someone writing in 1660, um, he'll have the same foreshortened um, perspective that we do. That is that the Greeks and the Romans belong to a time that we simply call antiquity. But that's not 
obviously the Roman point of view. The Romans thought of themselves as moderns, and they thought of um, Plato and Homer and Aeschylus as the ancients. Um, and they thought of them as really ancient. They didn't think, oh, look at us, we belong to this great period called antiquity, and in um, 2,000 years people will look back on this period that we share with the Greeks. Um, they, what they thought was, oh, look at those Greeks. Um, they were really smart, but um, um, it's just amazing how smart people could be all those hundreds of years ago, um, which is, I hope, more or less the way you guys are starting to think about both the Greeks and the Romans. Amazing how smart um, Plato could be. We thought people back there were um, basically saying, oh, 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's interesting. Or, oh, the square root of 2 is irrational, that's the most amazing thing ever, which it actually is. Um, but we, we know um, how to web surf. The Romans thought the same thing. Um, they thought of themselves as um, this ultra-modern um, civilization as compared to the ancient Greeks. And the ancient Greeks are just this um, wonderful but very old background to what they're doing. So when you see Ovid retelling these stories, which put the entire world together, um, part of the pleasure of doing that is um, a little bit like the pleasure of writing fantasy. In a way, he's um, doing the Percy Jackson novels of, um, of the first century BCE. Um, telling uh, the stories of um, really, really, really old stories and just finding this really wonderful way of putting them together. Those stories, as you will have noticed, culminate in Augustus. That is, that um, he talks about Augustus, who is um, the adopted son. Again, how many guys have seen Rome? Um, really? Huh. Do you know about it? Um, I mean, it's not The Wire, but it's at least Boardwalk Empire. Um, have you guys seen The Wire? Yes. Okay. <laughs> One of you? You guys just don't watch enough TV. It's shocking. <laughs> At least you don't watch enough HBO. Um, maybe you're watching Survivor. Who knows? Um, all right. Well, Rome, Rome is great. It really is great. Um, and you'll learn stuff. Uh, so the relation of Augustus Caesar to Julius Caesar, you know that Julius Caesar was assassinated. This is not... Do you know where the phrase, it's, all, it's Greek to me, comes from, by the way? Yes, what play? Good guess, yes. Um, so uh, Julius Caesar is assassinated. Um, he has adopted a grand nephew of his named Octavian or Octavius Caesar. Um, adoption was a very big thing in Rome. Um, it was a human relationship that was extremely important between people, and people with power did it all the time. Um, it's not something that we're particularly, that has any particular analog um, in, in our uh, culture or in most cultures. That is adults adopting adults. Adults of, a, of an earlier generation, like Julius Caesar, adopting adults who are a generation younger than they are. Um, so, at any rate, Julius Caesar adopts for various political as well as personal reasons um, Octavius Caesar. When Julius Caesar is assassinated, this leads to a chain of events which eventually um, makes Octavius Caesar the one leader of Imperial Rome, the first um, dictator or, or um, absolute power within 
Imperial Rome. Republic, the Republic of Rome is now gone, but he, and he takes the name Augustus. He is the August um, leader of Rome. It's where we get our month August, which is named after him, um, as July is named after Julius Caesar. You knew that, right? Yes, okay. Um, and um, we have the weird months that we have. Here, Ben, this is some Paradise Lost that we're going to look at. Thank you very much. Because um, they both got to have 31-day months, so February suffered. Um, because it wouldn't be right, Augustus thought, for Julius to have a month longer than him. Um, one day longer than his. Um, all right. <laughs> um, so uh, Augustus is a dictator, but a fairly benign one, having subdued the rest of the world. He's basically um, keeping peace and ushers in the era that's known as the Pax Romana, the peace that Rome kept for a couple of centuries in the world that it was um, administratively in charge of um, in the Roman Empire. Um, that fell apart. There was a long decline and an eventual fall that's a good phrase, a decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Um, long decline, eventual fall. Um, the fall was actually not till the 15th century. Um, when Gibbon talks about the fall of the Roman Empire, the end of that book occurs in the 1400s. Um, but the decline lasts a very long time before we get there. Um, however, we're not in the decline part. We're in the peak part. And the peak part is that Augustus is the head of the Roman Empire, and Virgil and Ovid are writing um, epics which partly take stock and say how we got to this place. And Virgil and Ovid both had mixed feelings about Augustus. Some of that we have to um, put together from uh, their work, which can't be overtly anti-Augustus, um, but in some ways it certainly questions him. Uh, it's also the case, just so you know this about Virgil, that Virgil, who um, hadn't quite finished polishing the Aeneid, also, like many great figures, um, felt that the metamorphosis from conception to execution was incomplete. Uh, the great 20th century um, critic Walter Benjamin um, once said, the work is the death mask of its conception, which is um, a great description um, almost um, the equal of Paul Valéry's uh, idea, as he puts it, that a poem is never finished, it is only abandoned. So there are many great works of literature which we have because people ignored their maker's request to destroy those works. Um, Kafka asked Max Broad to burn all his unpublished stories um, before he died, and Broad didn't. Um, and so most of Kafka was unpublished stuff. Um, Virgil wanted the Aeneid burnt after his death. Um, he was against it. And Augustus himself intervened to prevent the burning of the Aeneid. So the reason that we have it is that Augustus um, made sure that it would be saved. Um, it's a little bit harder to think of. Well, maybe it isn't. Do you think Obama would like save Jonathan Franzen if he said, oh my God, freedom, it's actually to suck um, and I want to burn it? And Obama said, no, you must keep it. Um, maybe, maybe not. Laura Bush, more likely. Um, so um, there are, so, but both these poems are ultra modern 
partly because um, they're talking about how we got from there, that is the creation of the world in the case of Ovid, um, but also the destruction of Troy um, to here, Augustus and the Roman Empire. Rome is the replacement empire for Troy. Um, the South will rise again, they say, in the South in the United States. Um, the Roman idea was that the Trojans rose again, that the Achaeans, having defeated them in the Trojan War, they had no idea how the Trojans were going to make their comeback. And comeback they did when they, when they established Rome. Is your hand up? Oh. No. Um, yeah. Do you know that um, Virgil and Ovid, did they write down the stories? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, this is, they are, you, they are urban, urbane, highly literate writers. Um, and there's no, there's the question of who Homer was and um, how his texts were transcribed and, um, you know, did the, the question, how did people memorize his texts and so on. We know almost nothing about Homer. Um, except what can be what can be gleaned from from the work, from the language, from um, certain styles of speech, from certain stylistic, but all internal evidence. Tons and tons is known about Virgil and Ovid. Not as much as we would want to know, but a lot more than is known about Shakespeare is known about Virgil and Ovid. Their biographies are actually very well known, very well attested, very well established. Um, Horace, who's the uh, one great poet we're not really reading, um, has poems which are letters to Virgil, uh, for example. So it's so there's poetry that survives in the form of letters because they were poets and they wrote verse letters to each other. Um, people still did that up through the 19th century. I don't know of any great verse letters that are actual letters. Um, Auden wrote wrote versions of verse letters, but they were intended for publication. Um, but um, people wrote each other um, letters in poetry. Um, the great poets wrote each other letters in poetry. Um, and those survived. So yeah, the life of Virgil and the life of Ovid, there, there are things that we don't know. And um, one thing that's not quite clear is why Ovid was exiled. Um, but their lives are very well attested, um, much better attested even, say, than the life of Socrates, which is very well attested. Um, so yeah, they were they were consciously poets. Horace, who was their friend, the three great poets um, of the of that period are Horace, Virgil, and Ovid. Um, and we talked about this a little bit when we were looking at the beginning of Inferno. Um, and um, they Horace, one of Horace's um, uh, most read works is the work called The Art of Poetry, the Ars Poetica. Um, which is, if you ever take the history of literary criticism in the English department here, that's one of the works of literary criticism that you will read in it. It's one of the three or four great works of literary theory and literary criticism of the ancient world. Um, maybe one of the two great works of literary criticism of the ancient world. Um, and the one that um, everyone knew up through, really through the middle of the 20th century, if you went to um, a boarding school or a prep school or a public school or a university, um, it's something that you would read as a matter of course and read in Latin as a matter of course. Um, you know a lot of tags from the Ars Poetica. 
um, that poetry should, you should make your poem like a painting, that um, the artfulness of poetry is in the hiding of the artfulness, that is poetry is artful but doesn't seem artful, that um, the phrase Homer nodded, um, if I think you can, um, there's a Wikipedia entry on Homer nodding. You look that up? Because I mentioned it? Or just by chance? By chance. Okay. Um, and the Wikipedia entry will tell you not only where Homer nods, which is pretty interesting, a couple of places where he nods, but also that the phrase comes from, from Horace, that Horace says, it drives me crazy when even great Homer starts falling asleep over his work. That is when he makes mistakes. Um, yeah? The Ars Poetica, or yeah. the idea of hiding art? No, no, no. The, uh, the Poetica means the whole climax. Of the oh, yeah. Action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think you won't find a lot of people saying that in film school, but yes. Mm -hmm. um, you, it's like every, every screenplay book begins with, like, Poetica. Did, no, really? Yeah, it's like, you know, just like Aristotle, you know, rising action, climax, revolution, blah, blah. Like, and so-and-so in the screenplay, we have three acts. Yeah, but that's Aristotle, not Horace. Um, Aristotle. Yeah, but Horace is, is the Homer-nodded guy. Yeah, not, not Homer-nodded. Yeah. No, so, so the, if you want to say who are the three great literary critics of antiquity, if you had to say three, it was Horace, Aristotle, and um, Longinus. Um, you could add Plato if you needed a fourth. Um, and that's something we'll talk about in a second. And you could add Cicero if you needed a fifth. But but really, it's Horace, Aristotle, and Longinus. So, so Horace is not only one of the three great poets of the Roman world of the first century BCE, but also one of the three great um, literary theorists of antiquity, um, of all antiquity. Um, and what that means, the reason I'm saying this is what it means is that not only are these guys poets who are writing poetry very consciously in, th in the tradition of writing poetry and doing part of, part of what I hope this course can give you a sense of is a kind of isomorphism between what people do in English when they, like Milton, are channeling the Greeks and Romans or what people can do in modern Italian when they, like Dante, are channeling the Romans. Um, but that an isomorphism between that, between a modern version of ancient literature, a modern translation, a modern um, adaptation of ancient literature, um, you can actually see that the Romans are also doing that to the Greeks. That is, that what Horace and Virgil and Ovid are thinking of themselves as doing is translating ancient Greek into modern Latin. Um, and that translation is not that easy to do. Um, and writing poetry in this new modern language um, where you take on some of the stuff that the ancients have done in a language that no one really speaks that way anymore, a language that is as different, that is um, Greek in um, the first century BCE is probably about as different from Homeric Greek as English is different now from Chaucerian English. Um, that is, it's not, oh yes, they were speaking Greek and Greek and Latin and Rome and um, that's, they were ancient, so they spoke their ancient languages fluently. Um, no, the languages are always changing. 
um, and the Greek that's being spoken at the time of Ovid and Virgil is very different from, from Homeric Greek or from Aeschylean Greek. Um, you already saw that in Aristophanes. Part of Aristophanes' parodies, or part of Wrong's parodies of people like Aeschylus and Euripides, is it parodies their somewhat out-of-fashion Greek. It parodies their kind of, you could call it like 1930s slang or 1960s slang. Um, a, a sort of groovy adaptation of Aristophanes would use the word groovy um, to indicate that this is an outmoded way of speaking. Um, so, so partly now we're moving into, um, in talking about Roman literature, we're moving into an analogy, um, into a place where we have, where, where we can um, understand their relation to their forebears by analogy with our own um, culture's relation to all of antiquity. We can understand that the Romans thought about the Greeks the way Milton thought about the Greeks and the Romans. Um, and that gives us a lot of insight. Um, in fact, one of the things that uh, Milton doesn't talk about this, but Spencer does, um, one of the general European ideas after the Aeneid was practically every great European country um, came up with its own version of the Aeneid. So, it's true that um, Spencer will say, and um, the English will say, it's true that Aeneas went and founded um, um, the, the Roman Empire, founded what would eventually become the Roman Empire. He himself didn't get, doesn't get to Rome, but founded Alba Longa. You will see this in the Aeneid. Um, that's true. But you know, other people escaped from Troy, too, other heroes. Mm -hmm. And good old Brutus, not, the, not bad Brutus, but good Brutus, um, you know what he did? He sailed to England. And what did he do? He founded the British Empire, which we call British after Brutus. And um, you know what city he founded, the way Rome was founded by um, the descendants of Aeneas? Brutus founded London. Um, so, so the idea is that, there's, um, that the British Empire, or the English um, uh, um, kingdom, is also created by heroic um, escapees from Troy. And the French thought Paris was. And um, the Portuguese thought Lisbon was. So there are many, many stories which are based on the Aeneid. And some of them are very modern. Some of them are occurring in the modern era. Um, not seriously. I don't think anyone seriously thought by the 1500s that um, that some, some Trojan hero escaped from Troy and founded Britain. I don't think that was even in the folklore as a serious belief anymore. Um, even the tea partiers of 17th century England didn't um, have that attitude towards the purity of their origins. Um, but it was a story that people liked. Um, it was um, George Washington escaped from Troy and um, chopped down the cherry tree, but then admitted it. Um, he didn't chop down the cherry tree, um, but it's still a nice story, and um, and it gave people a sense of possible a possible heroic past. Um, so again, I'm just saying this to say that 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 very recent English attitudes towards the Greek story of the fall of Troy are very easily matched up with. 
Roman attitudes towards the Greek story of the fall of Troy. Um, and so we can understand how the Romans felt or what the Romans thought about this because we can look at how our own culture feels and thinks about these things. And those two things are very close to each other, surprisingly close to each other. Um, okay, so one of the things that I wanted to do is if you look, the first passage um, from Paradise Lost um, is from Book 7 of Paradise Lost. Um, before you look at it, look at um, the beginning of, just keeping track of the time, um, look at the beginning of, um, of uh, the Metamorphoses. And um, yeah, just look at the very beginning, um, the, the part called the creation again, page 15. Um, before the seas and lands had been created, says Ovid, before the sky that covers everything, nature displayed a single aspect only throughout the cosmos. Chaos was its name, a shapeless, unwrought mass of inert bulk and nothing more with the discordant seeds of disconnected elements all heaped together in anarchic disarray. So all there was at the beginning was chaos. Um, how does this compare to the beginning of Genesis? Yeah, it's the same. In, um, there is a theory, and this is, again, going to matter in Paradise Lost, um, and it's the standard Christian teaching, but it's not um, clear that it's right, that God created the world out of nothing, ab nihilo. Um, ben, what were you going to say? I was just going to talk about it. Okay, so say more than No, That's I, it. I, I, I was taking the impression from Genesis that the world was created. Okay, well, Genesis actually doesn't I was say that. Say, I'm, but the way it looks compared to this suggests like really different things. Yeah, but in Genesis, the phrase is in the King James Bible. The phrase is the um, and the world was without form and void. So in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, and the world was without form and void. Does anyone know what the phrase "without form and void" translates? It translates the the Hebrew "tohu v'bohu," and no one really knows what tohu v'bohu means, um, but it seems to mean something like a mishmash. It's a, it's a rhyming phrase, um, and it's, it's more like chaos shmeos. It's all a mess. Um, this is That kind of phrase, by the way, is called a Hobson Jobson. Um, and it's, it's a reduplication, it's a rhymed reduplication, which in most languages basically seems to mean a mess of some sort or other. It's a kind of whatever-ish way of saying things. So the earth was all tohu v'bohu. Um, it was just this way and that. Um, and so Milton and uh, many other heretics, because Milton was a heretic, um, take tohu v'bohu to mean that there was chaos, that there was matter but not form. Um, and that this chaos is just, there was just a mess of everything in no possible order, and that what God did was to create, was to form this matter, was to take this matter and give it form. You can see how that's a little bit platonic of Milton. The idea is that form is what counts. I won't say form is what matters, um, because it's matter that matters, but form informs matter 
and gives it life and shape and meaning. So what? So form has meaning. Matter matters, but form means, um, and that's a Platonic view as well. Yeah. I mean, I I don't want to get us too on track. So like, from, from go ahead. So much, just, but like, um, I I don't know. I still think it's different because I mean, if I remember correctly, the King the King James version uses the word created, and I mean, it may be there may be some level of of, of formlessness and you know something actually existing, but the word created is utilized for it's you know like here, I, I mean the line although the land and sea and air were present. And I mean, you know, this is obviously coming from chaos, but the God or kinder nature settled this dispute by separating everything yeah. and not by creating it. Okay, so we'll look, at the Milton, we'll look at the Milton in a moment, but notice the first line, and you'd have to look at the Latin, but the creation before the seas and lands had been created. So partly you're arguing circularly. That is, you're, say, you're assuming that creation means creation out of nothing. Otherwise, he wouldn't use the word creation. But the reason you think creation means creation out of nothing is because that's what you think the Bible says. Now, in fact, it doesn't say that, at least not in the King James, because um, Adam is created out of the ground, created out of the ground, and the word used is created. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he, him, male and female created he, them. How does he create man out of red mud is the usual but false etymology of the word Adam. He takes clay and he turns it into human being, much as, much as Pygmalion will later on, um, and gives it life. So it's creation out of matter, creation the way a sculpture create, sculpture creates rather than creation out of nothing. We assume creation means creation out of nothing, but that's because we have imbibed a theory of biblical creation. That is, that creation, that there was nothing, and then God said, let there be something, there was something. So that something comes out of nothing. Milton didn't believe that. Um, and a lot of people, um, a lot of theologians don't believe it. Um, doesn't mean that if, it doesn't mean that the truth um, isn't creation out of nothing. Um, and it doesn't mean that the people who wrote the Bible um, didn't think that it was creation out of nothing. But it is, it's a debatable point. Do you want to? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was really, really pretty much the same, even the point where uh, in the Bible uh, God provides the water into the horizon yeah. and the ocean, and basically you have something that exists in the abyss, and he cuts it in, so yeah. basically like ordering everything into place. Yeah, and the truth is that Ovid knew, um, I won't, I can't say for certain, I'm sure people know, but I don't, that he knew the Genesis account, um, but he certainly knew versions of that account. Um, there's also the flood you'll recognize. I mean, the, these stories are going around. So, weren't there Bibles in the Alexandria Library? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's almost certain that he would have known the Genesis account, but he wouldn't have privileged it. That is, he wouldn't have said, oh, and then there's Genesis, and wow, that's going to be the thing that's really important for the next uh, millennia. Um, but he would know there are many, many versions of, the, of this story going around. Um, and he would have known um, and been thinking of, if not exactly that account, um, then similar accounts. What he is is he's a syncretic writer. He tries to put everything together. Any story that fits, as long as here we talk about consistency again, the way we're talking about it in Plato, any story that he can make consistent with his whole, with his whole aim, he will. Um, so he brings in these stories and he makes them consistent. Um, so at any rate, um, just look at this. So 
Um, there is only chaos, a shapeless, unwrought mass of inert bulk, and nothing more with the discordant seeds of disconnected elements all heaped together in anarchic disarray. The sun as yet did not light up the earth, nor did the crescent moon renew her horns, nor was the earth suspended in midair, balanced by her own weight, nor did the ocean extend her arms to the margins of the land. Um, Although the land and sea and air were present, land was unstable, the sea unfit for swimming, and air lacked light. Shapes shifted constantly, and all things were at odds with one another, for in a single mass, cold strove with warm, wet was opposed to dry and soft to hard, and weightlessness to matter having weight. Some god or kinder nature settled this dispute by separating earth from heaven, and then by separating sea from earth, and fluid ether from the denser air, and after these were separated out and liberated from the primal heap, primal heap, he bound the disentangled elements, each in its place and all in harmony. So we get from discord to harmony. Now look at the Milton. Um, and this is from Book 7 of Paradise Lost. And just to tell you um, what's going on here, um, the angel Raphael, he's the guy who blushes, um, the angel Raphael is telling Adam what happened before his birth. Um, so the story is that um, Satan and a third of the angels in heaven rebelled against God and his son. Um, and they fought a dubious battle upon the plains of heaven. People who, like John Steinbeck, will recognize that he used that as a title for one of his books, In Dubious Battle. Um, they fought this battle upon, they, they fought in dubious battle upon the plains of heaven, and after three days, the rebel angels were defeated and sent to hell. And um, God then says, um, there's now a lot of room in heaven now that these evil rebel angels are gone. Um, what we have to do is um, create another being to supply, that is to, um, uh, to make up for, to fill up the place of the fallen angels. Millions of spirits that have fallen into hell. Um, but rather than simply replacing them with clones, um, what, what I'm going to do, what we should do, is create almost godlike beings who can earn a place in heaven um, gradually but surely. Um, and so he creates a new world, earth, and then he puts um, Adam and Eve onto earth and tells them, just be happy and eventually you'll be transformed into angels. But don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge. That would be a mistake. In fact, I forbid it. Um, so that's what Raphael, who is visiting Adam and Eve, tells them about how they came to be created. And he says, well, first God created the earth. And what happened was, at the top of the page, heaven opened wide her ever-during gates, harmonious sound on golden hinges moving, to let forth the king of glory in his powerful word and spirit coming to create new worlds. So the king of glory is God, but he comes not in his own person, but with his word and his spirit, in his powerful word and spirit coming to create new worlds. A lot hangs on how you understand what it means that he comes out in his powerful word and spirit, but the simplest 
the simplest thing that you need to know about it is the word is is Christ um, because the Gospel of John begins. Does anyone know? In the beginning was. If you had to guess on Final Jeopardy. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the opening of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What John is saying there, John is the most philosophical and also the most anti-Semitic of the Gospel writers. Um, what he's saying there is Genesis begins um, in the beginning... God said, let there be light. So John is saying, see, the first thing that God did was to say a word. And so that word was God's power making ab nihilo, bringing into existence the very thing that it said. If God says light, his saying of light is light. So the first creation of God is light. So um, light is, in that sense, the Son of God created by the Word of God, who is also the Son of God, and all three are one. Um, that's what John is going to say. So the Word, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, because there's God, and it's saying the word light, and the Word was God, so much with him, that it is him, not separate from him. God is his words. And how do we think of that? We think of that word as being the son of God. Milton doesn't believe in the Trinity. He believes it's an important fact about Milton and one that he had to be careful about or he might have been executed. There were various things he might have been executed for. Um, but one thing that he believes is there's only God the Father and that the Son and the Holy Spirit are his closest attendants and closest beings he doesn't actually talk that much about the Holy Spirit, but the Son is his closest friend and is his actual Son, but is not God. However, he represents God on earth. Um, he comes, and when he speaks, he speaks for God. And so here Milton is describing the creation of the world, and he says the Son and the Spirit, the Word and the Spirit of God went forth. Um, and again, he's referring to a moment in Genesis, the Spirit of God hung or the Spirit of God moved on the waters. Um, ruach Elohim in Hebrew, the breath of God. But spirit means breath. So um, the king of glory was let forth in his powerful word and spirit, ruach, coming to create new worlds. Um, Milton knew Hebrew, by the way. Yeah. Um, you, you know, in, in, in the breath of God is being the spirit of God. I, you know, I mean, this idea of the breath, as being the spirit, I, we've seen that before in Homer, right? Yes, what, yeah. What is this? Spirit about? means breath. So the idea is that someone who is breathing has a spirit. And when they stop breathing, they no longer have a spirit. And the idea is that when you expire, when you hit your expiration date and die, you breathe your last, you breathe it out. You breathe out life. Eventually, it'll be that you breathe out your soul. But originally, it just means breathing out life. So the idea of breath equals life equals um, having a soul equals having a mind. All those things come together. And to be inspired is to have your mind inflated um, by the muse or by the god. Um, something is breathed into you so that you have more of a spirit than you had before. 
Um, so that's, that's an old metaphor um, and one that Milton is putting together from both um, Greek and Latin as well as Hebrew sources. So the spirit was, um, in his powerful word and spirit, coming to create new worlds, on heavenly ground they stood, and from the shore they viewed the vast immeasurable abyss. So they're now looking at chaos. They look at the vast immeasurable abyss. But abyss here doesn't mean emptiness. It doesn't mean nothingness. But it's an abyss like standing at the edge of a roaring, incredibly deep canyon, but, but half filled with water or sea, standing on the cliffs of Dover. They look at the vast, immeasurable abyss, outrageous as a sea, dark, wasteful, wild, up from the bottom, turned by furious winds and surging waves, as mountains to assault heaven's height, and with the center mix the pole. Silence, ye troubled waves, and thou deep. Peace, said then the omnific word. Omnific there means doing everything, all-powerful, um, or all-doing word. Silence, ye troubled waves, and thou deep. Peace, said then the omnific word. Your discord end. So notice that Ovid, too, was talking about the discord of all the elements in chaos. Now the word of God speaks and says, end your discord. Nor stayed, but on the wings of cherubim uplifted in paternal glory rode far into chaos and the world unborn. So it's exact, it's, he's almost translating Ovid here. For chaos heard his voice, him all his train followed in bright procession to behold creation and the wonders of his might, that is of God's might or of the Son's might. Then stayed the fervent wheels, and in his hand, that is, um, the, he's remember he's riding in the chariot of paternal glory. Um, oh, it doesn't say chariot here, but that is. In paternal glory, he rode far into chaos. Then stayed the fervid wheels. So hit the wheels of the chariot of paternal glory, um, which is the Merkaba, if you know about the Merkaba in Ezekiel. Um, stop in the midst of chaos. The Son of God is in the chariot in the midst of chaos. And what does he do? And in his hand, he took the golden compasses. Who uses that as a title? Yes, in the American version. Um, he, and in his hand, he took nor northern lights. And in his hand, he took the golden compasses prepared in God's eternal store to circumscribe this universe and all created things. So now he's going to create this universe by circumscribing it with this golden compass. One foot he centered, one foot of the compass, and the other turned round through the vast profundity obscure and said, thus far extend, thus far thy bounds, this be thy just circumference, O world. Thus God the heaven created, thus the earth, matter unformed and void, tohu vabohu. So he created um, matter unformed and void. He took that and he made it into heaven and earth. Um, darkness profound covered the abyss, 
but on the watery calm, his brooding wings, the Spirit of God outspread. So remember, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, is usually represented iconographically as a ladder? As a dove. Um, so the standard iconography of the Holy Spirit is that, is that he appears as a dove. If you look at paintings of um, either John being baptized or Jesus being baptized or Mary receiving the annunciation of the, ver of the fact that she will give birth to Jesus, the dove will often be um, descending there, the dove as the spirit of God. Milton doesn't actually believe in that, but he thinks it's a great metaphor and that it's being used metaphorically. So the spirit of God, according to Genesis, um, moves on the waters. Milton represents that as the spirit of God is a dove that is brooding over the abyss. What does the word brood mean, literally, not metaphorically? We use it almost always metaphorically, but literally, what does it mean? Where would you, if you're... <laughs> If you're asked to define brood on um, a short answer test in a department here, what department would you be in? That's such a weird way of asking. <laughs> Biologically, what's a brood? Yes, chickens, exactly. Um, broods are, are um, you breed broods. Brood, like you do deeds, you breed broods. Um, and in, and um, yeah, it's like if you hatch a bunch of chickens, they're the brood. Um, the brood of ducks, if you go to the Boston Common and you see the make way for ducklings ducks, yeah. um, it's, the, it's the adult duck, the mother duck, and her brood. Um, what it means to brood, when we brood, we're just like, oh God, what am I going to do? But, what it actually, but that's a metaphor. What it means to brood is to sit on an egg. Um, and people who look like they're brooding, it's a little bit like the Rodin sculpture of the, sculpture of the thinker. That is, they're sitting and they're not moving. Um, and, and the bird looks lost in thought. So when you talk about brooding, it's being lost in a certain kind of thought and refusing to move from what you're doing. But that's because that's what birds do on their eggs. In particular, and Milton didn't know about penguins, what kind of birds? What sex of bird? Females. Females. Yeah, so Milton twice calls the spirit of God um, the dove that broods on the abyss. He twice um, talks about that dove as brooding on the abyss. It's his own image, um, but it also means something that you'll see in Paradise Lost and that he also gets out of Ovid, that he doesn't distinguish between male and female um, angels or God. That is, the distinction of gender is a human distinction, not an angelic distinction. Um, that's something that Raphael, when he blushes, will also talk about. Um, remember Adam says, uh, do you guys have sex? It seems kind of like it wouldn't be fun since you're all spirits and all. And um, Raphael says, well, he blushes and he says, well, we do. I'm not going to tell you about it. But just consider, um, well, this isn't safe for work. You'll read it when you get there. Um, so here you have the Spirit of God brooding over 
the vast abyss. His brooding wings, the spirit of God outspread, and vital virtue infused, and vital warmth throughout the fluid mass. But downward purge the black, tartarius, cold, infernal dregs adverse to life, then founded, then conglobed like things to like, the rest to several places disparted, and between spun out the air, such a beautiful image, spun out the air, and earth self-balanced on her center hung. Beautiful phrase, yeah. Um, I don't know if this is like an important question, but I was just curious where like some of the Spelling comes from? It's, it's 17th century spelling. Oh, okay. um, spelling wasn't regularized till the 18th century. And um, when you read Shakespeare, we almost always read it in modern texts because we don't know what Shakespeare actually wrote. We don't know how he spelt words. We only know how the printers spelt them. So there's no real point um, in reading. I mean, there's the, some people will argue that there's some point in reading Shakespeare in original spelling, but there are almost no um, Shakespeare courses will use old spelling editions of Shakespeare. Um, lots of Milton courses, it probably breaks 50-50, will use old spelling editions of Milton. Even though Milton was blind, um, the spelling does seem to record a little bit of his emphasis. So um, the crucial one, um, and I'll just mention this now, is sometimes pronouns like he, she, and me will be written with two e's and sometimes with one. And um, it seems to be the case that there's a fair correlation between when you want that pronoun emphasized in a line and whether it has two e's or not. Um, so the son, for example, will say, on me let fall your wrath, and that's a two e. And if you modernize the spelling of Milton, you won't quite get um, what might actually be the residue of his voice. Um, that is, he's dictating the poem out loud, and it's being written down by his daughters. Um, and the double E me might actually um, get us directly back to his own emphasis while he's speaking. Um, Lots of people think that's BS and that it's that the difficulty of reading Milton in old spelling um, so detracts from the advantages um, compared to the advantages that it gives you that there's no point to it. Um, but the, um, the one poet who should always be read in old spelling is Spencer. Um, and, uh, well, I don't know if any of you are going to take Spencer and Milton in the spring, but um, almost every edition in, of Spencer will be in the original spelling. And the reason is that Spencer is punning in every other word. And the spelling, um, if, if you modernize the spelling, you miss the puns. Spe Spencer is um, very conscious of how he's spelling things. So, yeah, no, it doesn't, doesn't distract. Okay, um, so the point again is um, that that very phrase, um, an earth self-balanced on her center hung, that beautiful phrase is his translation of um, the beginning of um, Ovid, where what we have is, um, nor was Earth's, nor was the Earth suspended in midair, balanced by her own weight. That is not yet was the Earth suspended in midair and balanced by her own weight, but eventually it would be. And so in Milton's version, now Earth is balanced by her own weight in midair. I want to look at. We will talk 
more about Ovid, and I do want to get to um, the parable of the caves at least a, of the cave at least a little bit. But I want us to look at a section. We're going to have to talk about Narcissus, and I think we'll do that a bit on Tuesday, and then go on to um, um, Virgil. But go to Book Five, um, which you didn't read. Um, but um, what there is, what um, there is in Book Five is the story um, the Calliope is telling of the um, of Proserpina's kidnapping <coughs> by Hades by Pluto, um, where she becomes queen of the underworld. Um, and that story we talked about it, I think, the first class. That story of Proserpina's being taken away by Pluto and brought to the underworld. Um, and then the um, fact that she spends half the year there and half the year up above. Um, that's a story that Ovid tells. And all, uh, um, we won't look through the whole story, but if you just look at, um, this is page 175 at around line uh, 552. Near Hannah's walls, um, this is Calliope the Muse telling this story. Calliope, by the way, is Orpheus's mother, you'll recall. Um, near Hannah's walls stands a deep pool of water called Pergus. Not even the river, Caster, flowing serenely, hears more songs from its swans. And this pool is completely surrounded by a ring of tall trees whose foliage, just like an awning, keeps out the sun and preserves the water's refreshing coolness. The moist ground is covered with flowers of Tyrian purple. Here it is springtime forever. And here Proserpina was playfully picking its white lilies and violets, and while competing to gather up more than her playmates, filling her basket and stuffing the rest in her bosom, Dis saw her, Dis being another name for Pluto or Hades, Dis saw her, was smitten, seized her, and carried her off. His love was that hasty. The terrified goddess cried out for her mother, her playmates, but for her mother most often, since she had torn the uppermost seam of her garment, and the gathered flowers rained down from her negligent tunic because of her tender years and her childish simplicity. Even this loss could move her to maidenly sorrow. Um, so there is, um, and then go to line 608, that is on the next page. Meanwhile, at line, um, the, the first full paragraph on page 177, meanwhile the terrified mother was pointlessly seeking her daughter all over the earth and deep in the ocean, neither Aurora appearing with dew-dampened tresses nor Hesperus knew her to quit. Igniting two torches of pine from the fires of Adnesh, the care-ridden goddess, the goddess is Ceres, um, the goddess of grain. Um, the care-ridden goddess used them to illuminate the wintry shadows of nighttime. And when the dear day had once more dimmed out the bright stars, she searched again for her daughter from sunrise to sunset. So Ceres is looking for her daughter, Proserpina, who's been kidnapped by the king of the underworld. Now that Ovidian story, or that story as Ovid tells it, but that very old story and myth of why there is winter, um, is a story that naturally appealed to Milton, who is also interested 
in a figure, a female figure in a garden who is seduced and destroyed by the king of the underworld, that is Satan. Um, in other words, again, what Milton is doing is a little bit like what Ovid is doing. He is taking all these stories from the ancient world and putting them all together in a seamless web. So um, if you look at the second Paradise Lost passage, this is from Paradise Lost Book 4, um, what this passage is about, um, the context of this is we are in Eden. And Milton is in Homeric fashion describing what Eden looks like. And like Homer, in those moments in Homer, Milton uses um, uh, or parallels these a lot. Um, Milton, like Homer, is saying, let me compare this to something you know about even when I tell you that the thing you know about isn't comparable to the amazingness of what I'm describing. So Homer you know, is persistently saying something like, Hector picked up a rock, such a rock as two men today could barely, um, could barely move, but Hector picked it up and threw it hard at Achilles. Um, as though it were a light thing. So that comparison, which is not one, you'll see it in Dante also. Dante, when he sees Satan at the center of the earth, Dante and Virgil descend to the center of the earth in their trip to the underworld. Um, and when Dante sees Satan, he says, as I am to a giant, to one of the giants that Genesis mentions, like Nimrod. As I am to a giant, my proportion to a giant was far smaller, or far larger. I was much closer in size to a giant than that giant was even to the arm of Satan. So again, he's saying, you want to know how huge Satan is? His arm was, was more bigger and more better, more bigger. Um, than um, a giant was bigger in proportion to the size of a giant than a giant would be to the size of a person. So I, Dante, to a giant, um, that's, a, that's um, less of a difference than a giant to the arm of Satan. Um, so there are four, you could say that there are four um, uh, baffles for um, think for inequalities. Um, you know how sometimes in physics or math you use you use double or triple inequality signs to say that this is a much bigger number. Um, so there are four inequality signs you could say between Satan and Dante. That that comparison by way of inequality. That's something that Milton loves and that Homer loved and that Milton gets out of Homer. So here he's comparing Eden, the paradise of Eden. Um, the paradise in Paradise Lost is the paradise of Eden. It's not, it's not what paradise sometimes <laughs> is taken to be, which is heaven, um, but it's paradise on earth. He compares the paradise of Eden to every other garden described by every other poet. And so he says, Thus was this place, that is Eden, a happy rural seat of various view, groves whose rich trees wept odorous gums and balm. And he wants you to be thinking about Ovid already. That is all the stories in Ovid about the creation of trees, of weeping trees, the creation of the laurel, for example, which you read about for today. 
others whose fruit burnished with golden rind hung amiable. Hesperian fables true, if true, here only and of delicious taste. Betwixt them lawns or level downs and flocks grazing the tender herb were interposed, or palmy hillock or the flowery lap of some irriguous valley spread her store, flowers of all hue, and without thorn the rose. So in Eden there were roses, flowers of all hue, and roses without thorns. Another side, umbrageous grots and caves of cool recess, o'er which the mantling vine lays forth her purple grape, and gently creeps luxuriant. Mean, meanwhile, murmuring waters fall down the slope hills, dispersed or in a lake, that to the fringed bank with myrtle crowned her crystal mirror holds, unite their streams. So there's a lake that all the streams go into, fringed with myrtle, and it's a mirror now. You should be thinking Echo and Narcissus. Um, the birds, their choir apply. So the birds are singing airs, vernal airs, that is the airs of springtime, breathing the smell of field and grove, attune the trembling leaves, while universal pan knit with the graces and the hours in dance let on the eternal spring. And then the, the inequality comparison. Not that fair field of Anna, where Proserpine, gathering flowers, herself a fairer flower, by gloomy dis was gathered, which cost Ceres all that pain to seek her through the world, nor that sweet grove of Daphne by Orontes and the inspired Castilian spring might with this paradise of Eden strive. So even the stories that Ovid tells, the story of, of the field of Enna where Proserpine was gathering flowers, and which we just read, or, this, or the story of Daphne, which you read in book one, neither of those could, or book three maybe, maybe it was, neither of those could strive with this paradise of Eden. But notice, this is so typical of Milton and so beautiful. Um, notice that even as he's saying, what I'm talking about was much more amazing than that. He pauses to talk about Proserpine gathering flowers herself, a fairer flower. So she's gathering flowers, but she herself is a flower fairer than any of the flowers that she gathers. And she is, gath she is herself gathered by gloomy dis. And what did that do? That cost Ceres all that pain to seek her through the world. There's this moment of sympathy for Ceres, a moment for sympathy for the Ceres that we've just seen in Ovid, who is looking all night and all day for her lost daughter. And I'll just say that phrase, all that pain, you will see over and over again in Milton. Um, three-word phrases beginning with all. Um, the most famous one is of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. So all that pain, all our woe. Um, and he pauses to think of 
the pain that Ceres is feeling over the loss of her daughter. And that's, he's pausing to remember how moving and powerful the Ovidian story is. So partly I just wanted you to see, um, I wanted to do lots of things, but one of the things I wanted to do was to bring the Ovidian um, context into Milton and to see the way Ovid is thinking about the Greeks, Milton is thinking about Ovid. Um, okay, let's just, we do need to move on from Plato, and we're, we're getting there. Uh, let's look at the parable of the cave, um, which is um, middle, yeah, I don't have the same page numbers, I keep forgetting that, which is middle um, Plato. Um, do you have this version? It starts on page um, 312. Um, and he, he's giving it as, it, and this is 514a, uh, the beginning of book seven of the Republic. And he's giving this as um, an, a parable, what he calls a parable of ed education. Um, do you all have the diagram, this one, in your books? Um, so the crucial thing, again, is that you have a tripler, quadrupler, quintuple distancing from what can be seen by the prisoners in the cave and reality itself. And um, Plato, um, Plato, not Socrates, even though it's Socrates speaking, Plato believes that reality itself resides in this world of forms. So he tells the story and, or the parable, and the parable is that there are a lot of prisoners who are tied together and can't turn their heads, can only look at the wall of the cave, but they can speak to each other. And um, behind them is a fire, and in front of the fire are um, <coughs> dolls of some sort, um, sculptures, um, artifacts of some sort, whose shadows are projected onto the walls of the cave. And they hear sounds coming from um, behind them, but the sounds are echoing off the wall of the cave, so they think the shadows are speaking, or they think the images are speaking. Um, and so what they're doing is they're looking at really what's pretty much the first description of a movie um, back in, um, back 2,500 years ago, 2,400 years ago. And um, because they're all facing front and can't look at each other, they have no sense of even what being more real than a shadow on a wall would be, which is that they themselves are more real than the shadow on the wall. But they, ca they can only look at the shadows, and they can only hear sounds that they think come from the shadows. So Plato's view, um, which is the view of imitation, and we didn't talk enough about this, but, but I'll say it. Um, Plato thinks that this world, this chair, this computer, this book, that what we are are copies of the real thing which, which exists in the world of forms. And um, this world, our sublunary world, sublunary, what does it mean again? I'm going to keep asking. Under the moon. Under the moon. This world under the moon, this everyday world, is a copy of, and a second-rate copy of reality. That what we live in is, I don't know, the matrix, um, in a copy of reality, in a virtual world. Um, now, the reason he's against art, we talked already about the competition between Socrates and the poets, and Aristophanes also feels this competition, 
Aristophanes is saying, no, this world is real. It's not fake. Um, it's not a chintzy copy of reality. The reason Plato gives for gives Socrates to give for being <laughs> against art is that if that a painting of a chair is even farther away from the real chair that we ourselves don't already don't have access to. But a painting of the chair just gets us in the wrong direction. Now we're going towards the realm of unreality if we go towards imitation and towards art. This chair, this one here, this chair, is already an imitation of the capital C chair in the Platonic heaven. And then if you paint a chair, that's just an imitation of an imitation. Um, and, and you're instead of heading out of the cave towards reality, you're heading even deeper into the cave towards cave paintings, towards things that have even less reality than this. This will eventually lead to the idea of a chain of being. That is that paintings or um, um, uh, artifacts have the least reality of all things. Um, real things have more reality, but the forms have still more reality. Uh, the chain of being is something you're going to see in Paradise Lost. Um, but that we go from what's unreal to what's real. Um, so here he's giving an account of that, that in the cave, people look at projections on a wall, and they think those projections are the real thing. But if they turned around, they would see what was causing those projections. Namely, those dolls and sculptures and other artifacts that whose image is being projected onto the wall by the fire behind them. Now, would those things be reality? No, but they would be a little bit more real than the shadows in the cave. And does the light from the fire, is that the light of reality? No, but it's more real than the shadows that it's casting. It's actually light, but if you went past the light, of the fire. You could go into the world outside the cave. And would that be reality? No, but it would be more real than anything in the cave. But if you went out into that light outside the cave, your eyes would be dazzled because you're, you're, you're so used to the, the semi-darkness of the cave lit only by this fire where you see only shadows, that your eyes would be dazzled. But eventually your eyes would get used to the light. And what would you see? You would see very bright objects and you might see a well um, and you would look into the water of the well and you would see another reflection, not the shadow on the wall of the cave, but the reflection of the sun in the water. And that would probably blind you, just seeing the reflection of the sun in water, and you would be dazzled. But eventually, you might, you, your eyes might get used to even that. And you would look at that reflection, and you would see that it was light reflected in the water. And you would say, but from where? And then you would look up in the sky, and you would see the real sun. And that would completely blind you. But then you would see truth, according to this parable. So the sun in the sky, two shadows on a wall, that's the difference between reality and this world. That's the point of the parable of the cave. But then, that's the point of the description. But then Socrates says, what would happen to someone who went out there into the sky and saw the real sun, and then returned to the cave and said, come out to the sky, I want to free you. 
And he says, well, the first thing that would happen is his eyes now used to the light, he would be blind in the cave. He wouldn't be able to see his way at all in the cave. All those people in the cave, they would see fine. Their eyes are used to the darkness. But his pupils would be pinpricks because of the brightness of the sun. And he'd go into the cave and it would be completely dark. And so he would look crazy. He would look like he couldn't even find his way around this world. How could he possibly know anything about the truth? And when he told them that everyone was looking at illusions in this cave, shadows of shadows of shadows, they would get angry at him and Plato says they would probably kill him. The people in the cave would kill the person who saw the truth. Now Plato is telling that story because it's also a parable of the execution of Socrates. That is, he's making Socrates a kind of prophet, but this is written well after Socrates' death, but Plato's dramatic fictional version of Socrates is prophesying what will happen to him, which is his own execution. But what I wanted to point out to you is, I'll just point it out, um, that what Plato has Socrates quote here, this is about 516C or D, um, if there were honors and praises among them and prizes for the one who saw the passing things most sharply and remembered best which of them used to come before and which after and which together, and from these was best able to prophesy accordingly what was going to come, that is, if the people in the cave had all sorts of um, honors and prizes, as we do in Athens, do you believe he would set his desire on that, that is, the person who'd been outside of the cave? Would he set his desires on that and envy those who were honored men or potentates among them? That is, he who returns back to the cave, do you think he'd want to become um, an important senator um, or professor in Athens? Um, of course not. Would he not feel, as Homer says, and heartily desire rather to be serf of some landless man on earth and to endure anything in the world rather than to opine as they did and to live in that way? So what is he referring to in Homer there? He's quoting Homer. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So that's Achilles' speech from Book 11 of the Odyssey, which Plato has Socrates quote um, in the context of the descent into the cave. Um, okay, so Virgil, and we will talk more, a little bit more about Ovid, especially Echo and Narcissus, and begin talking about Virgil for um, Tuesday. <laughs>